Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. Thank you. Well, it's... uh... You know what makes me more nervous than standing in front of you is, is, is pushing these buttons and making sure I don't forget to, to move on and all those kind of things. And We'll ignore the choir at the back there. Um, we've had children and we've had grandchildren. and uh, Well, it's, it's, good, it's good to be here this morning and to be able to share with you. <clears throat> and it's strange to stand in front of you. Um, I always get more nervous when it's a small group of people. I, I would far sooner be standing in front of a thousand people, quite honestly, because then I can't make eye contact with anybody. You, know, you can move around. But uh, standing in front of a group of people you know is, is, is quite nerve-wracking to me. But let that be. Um, we trust that the Lord is going to do the speaking anyway this morning, and I'll just be the, the vehicle through, who, through whom he chooses to speak this morning. Um, as I was preparing, I was, I, was, I was thinking of the fact that I don't know everybody sitting here, and I'm not passing judgment on anybody sitting here, but, but I think it's so important that we understand that if we don't have the Holy Spirit, if we don't have God's, God's Word, God's Holy Spirit guiding us, His Word is meaningless. That if God's Holy Spirit is not enlightening the things that I'm saying to you out of God's Word, this is going to be a long half hour for you. And I don't know if everybody here knows what it means to have the Holy Spirit in you and and when do you get the Holy Spirit and and how does this whole thing work? Well, it's very simple. In this little church, and I'm thankful for that, we we don't practice religion. We try and lead you to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And that only happens when you, not when you're baptized as a baby or, or, or have some water sprinkled on you or some certificate is filled in, or you're baptized as an adult or you have some kind of a thing that you go through and jump over the hurdles and go through all the hoops. No, it happens when you personally understand that you are a sinner. And that sin separates you from God. That you were born a sinner. That you're lost in your sin. And that you need Jesus Christ to save you because he died for your sin. And the minute that you understand that and you realize that and you come to God in in absolute simplicity and say, God and Father, I understand that I'm a sinner. That I'm lost. That I have a sinful nature. That I'm lost in my sinfulness. Please help me. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who took my sin upon himself. I accept that sacrifice personally. I accept him as my savior. In that moment, God makes you his child because you have repented of your sinfulness and you've asked for his forgiveness and you've asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your life. And then his Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, comes into our life. And then for the first time, God's word takes on meaning that it never had before. I was 12 years old when that happened, and I can remember, even as a 12-year-old boy, 
reading God's Word and suddenly realizing this Word is living and it's incredible. It's like I've never read it before. And so I hope each one of us that are sitting here know that and understand that, that God's Word is meaningless without the Holy Spirit's guidance. And I should have moved on, and I didn't move on. God's Word is meaningless. God's Word is meaningless without the Holy Spirit's guidance. I'm glad it came up. And you've got a little fill-in form, and you can, and you can fill in the, the answers there just to keep you awake. <clears throat> and we'll go through this, this wonderful psalm, and, uh, and we'll, we'll trust that the Lord is going to guide us and lead us and, and teach us some things out of the psalm. Um, things that, you know, He wants to tell us. He's going to tell each one of us different things. His Holy Spirit is going to work in our hearts and He's going to speak to our hearts and He's going to guide us. Um, God's Word, you know, is, is, is a miracle. God's Word is, is a miracle. Um, just picking up the psalm and reading it and, and thinking of how Wade has introduced the psalms to us and how we've had different psalms spoken to us and preached to us. And Pastor Kim also, I think, took one of the psalms. The wonder of, of, of the relevance of these psalms is just, is just a wonderful thought. It just brings me back to the absolute miracle of what God's Word is, how fresh it is, how new it is, how it speaks to us every time we pick it up, how God uses it in our lives and how this confession that we've been saying this morning and these songs that we've been singing have affirmed these things out of God's Word and that they touch every aspect of our lives. These psalms were written, the earliest, like we heard the last time Wade spoke, was by Moses, written long thousands of years ago, and yet so relevant and so true and so touches the problems that we face today. And God's truth is unchanging. God's Word is unchanging. And that's what we're going to base the message on this morning, that God's Word is unchanging. And that's the one thing that we need in a world where everything is changing and everything's moving and, and things are progressing and things are happening. There's one thing that hasn't changed and that will never change, and that is God's Word. And we can depend on that. It is a wonderful thing just to, just to understand the, the relevance of God's Word and how it is unrivaled Understand the miracle of God's Word. Understand that there's no book in the history of this world that can even come close to comparing to God's Word. Nothing can compare to God's Word. People will bring out old historical books, but they are all dry, meaningless stories and things and legends. But God's Word is fresh and new and speaks to us every day. And, and, and God tells us that, of course, in Hebrews 4, that His Word is active it's living, and it's active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, and joints and marrow. And it's discerning, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's our prayer this morning, that as we speak, and as I speak, and as we listen, that God's Word will do that in our lives, and that it will speak to us, and, and we'll hear something that will challenge us and encourage us. We must understand how, how mankind has tried to destroy this truth. And Satan, through mankind, has tried to move this truth out the way. Throughout the history of mankind, we've had occasions of huge attack on God's Word, 
trying to take it out the way, trying to destroy it, trying to move it, trying to eliminate it. And we can think back even on recent history, we can think of someone like Joseph Stalin, and I was just reading up on him a little bit this week. What a terrible, merciless, heartless, godless character he was. How he hated God. How he took God out of the communist system and said it was the opium of the masses. We don't need it. We'll replace it. We'll take it out the way. It won't exist. In the next hundred years, it'll be gone. It'll be history. It will never be used again. And Joseph Stalin, on his deathbed, his daughter tells how that in his last action, as he was dying, he sat up on his bed and he clenched his fist and he waved his fist to heaven and fell back on his bed and breathed his last breath. Sad. But that is man's hatred and attack against this word of God. And yet, Stalin is gone and communism is pretty well gone, but God's truth marches on. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that encouraging this morning? Doesn't that make you want to say amen? (laughs) Praise the Lord for that. Thank you that we can build and we can be encouraged by this wonderful, wonderful word. And we understand too, as we speak about the, the history of man and his sinfulness and trying to destroy it, that God alone has kept it what it is today. You know, it's, it's incredible always to me when I pick up my English Bible and Peter was reading, and thank you, Peter, for reading so well in English. I would have struggled more in Afrikaans, I can tell you. Um, it's astounding that you and I can read it in English or in Korean or whatever this morning and, and have an accurate version of God's Word in our hands that is true and sound and kept so by God Himself. This is not something that man has done. This is something that God has done and that God keeps doing and keeps for us throughout the history of this world. It's those 66 books of the Bible that were put together over a period of 1,500 years plus minus, written all over the place in different generations by different people, all have this one wonderful, wonderful central theme. That as we read the written word, our eyes are focused on the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the, who is the theme of this wonderful book. And it fills and should fill our hearts with wonder. And the objective of it is to know the true God and to become more like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be controlled more and more by His Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray You this morning, we speak to You this morning, and we ask You that You will, that we might see, that You'll open our eyes, and that we might see wondrous things out of Your law. That You'll teach us and challenge us, Father, from this great and wonderful book that we hold in your hands. We thank you for it. And we thank you that it is truth unchanging and truth eternal. And so, now we get to our psalm. <laughs> and we, uh, we can be very rough at times on psalmists and on people that we read about in the Bible, but I think one of the wonderful things about the Bible, another thing about the Bible, is that it doesn't hide the faults and the, and the weaknesses of the people that it writes about. That it openly speaks of weakness and sinfulness and all the characters even that wrote the books of their own sinfulness and their own weakness. And this morning we read this wonderful um, psalm that is written by Asaph. 
And he's in, a, he's in a bad place, but I think he's in a place that we can all relate to. He's in a place where he's questioning whether God's word is the truth. Is God's word the truth? And Asaph is, is saying in verse 1 of, of Psalm 73, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are of a pure heart. But as for me, I'd almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. I want to tell you too that I'm not going to go through this verse for verse as well as well. Wade does his, his psalms. It would take me too long anyway, but I'm going to skip through, but I will, I will stick to the text of, 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 of Psalm 73, and we'll get to the end of it. <clears throat> but these first verses of this psalm tell us that, that Asaph is in a place where, that we can relate to. He's in a place where he's saying, I know that God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Who of you have been in a place like that? Who of you understand and have understood, I'm sure every single person sitting here has been in this place where, where we get to a place where we say, I know that God is good. I know that God is great. I know that I must trust him. But you know what? This situation is just out of control. It's just too big. It's just, you've got to understand, this is different than anything else that I've faced. I know that these truths about God, but, and we're good at that, and we do that often. And that's the wonder that we can, that we can relate to this morning, of this situation, of this poor man who is so much like every one of us, who, who sits in this situation, he knows the truth, He's a wonderful man that wrote the psalm and wrote psalms. And he's at this point where his feet are slipping. He knows this truth about God, but... You know, Paul writes something to the Corinthians that I think relates to this. And he, and he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 that no temptation or, or testing, we could say, no testing, similar word, no test, temptation or testing has overtaken you that is not common to man. Nothing that you are dealing with, God is saying through Paul to the Corinthians, to us this morning, nothing that you are facing this morning is, 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 is boy, nobody has ever faced that before. No, no. No, 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 no. Many people have faced that before. So comfort yourself in that, that God is not daunted by this big problem that you have, and it is a big problem. I'm not saying you don't have big problems, or we don't have big, we do have huge problems. But God is bigger than those problems. He's not daunted or put off by those problems. He wants us to understand that nothing that you're going to face in this world, He will not walk with you through. And that's what He goes on to say. For God is faithful, and He will not let you be tested or tempted beyond what your ability, beyond your ability. But with that temptation or test, He will provide the way of escape that you are able to bear it. God is faithful. And that is what Asaph had to understand. God is faithful. You know, one of, the, one of the things that we struggle with, I think, in this whole situation is this thing of emotion. Emotion is a, is a, is a, very, a very good thing. And, and I find it strange when I, I, I run into people that are very unemotional because I've got a sort of artistic... Um, temperament, and I can, uh, you know, I'm like a weeping prophet. (laughs) 
Um, but I, I have emotions that are easily stirred, and I think emotions are not a bad thing. They're a good thing. Some people can rise above their emotions and be stoic, and lots of us think we can be stoic, but, but emotions are not a bad thing. Jesus Christ set us an example of a man who was balanced, who had emotions, who cried in front of people, who showed emotion. He wasn't the steely, uh, set-up-a-jaw person uh, marching forth without being moved right or left. He, he showed the kind of temperament that we have. But emotions are also very dangerous in that we, we cannot base our decisions, we cannot base our faith and our trust on our emotions. Because our emotions lead us all over the place. One, one morning I wake up and I'm in the clouds. And the next morning I'll wake up and I'm, boy, I've got the world on my shoulders. And I can wake up with the world on my shoulders in the morning, Stephen, and by later morning I'm feeling better, isn't that so? Or the other way around. But my emotions are are really things I can't trust. And what God wants to tell us, I think, in this piece, is that Asaph was struggling with this thing. His emotions were telling him that his feet were slipping, that this problem was too big, that God couldn't handle it. But that wasn't the truth. The truth is that God is faithful. The truth is that God's feet don't slip, that God's word doesn't change, that I can trust his truth that he will not test me beyond what I'm able to bear. And so whatever I'm going through this morning, whatever I'm dealing with in my life, don't try and hide it. Don't try and push it away. Don't try and expose it to God. Expose it to his truth. Allow him to, to, to give you the courage and the strength that you need. I, I often think we tend to deal with the Holy Spirit in this way. We ask the Lord to come into our lives and and we invite him in, and we accept him as our Lord and Savior, and, we, and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, but, but we like to keep him compartmentalized. But as we grow and mature as Christians, hopefully we get to a point where we say, control me. As Paul says, we shouldn't be drunk with wine. We should be, we should be controlled in the same way as a guy staggering around there from wine is controlled by the wine. We should be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so we get to a point, I think, where we say to the Lord, allow your Holy Spirit to, to rule in my life and, and, and take out these things, remove these things, help me with my doubts, help me with the things that I'm struggling with. And we're almost like a person that, that, that gets a friend that, that needs a place to stay and, and, and I invite him into my home and he's my best friend. And I say, come and stay with me, I love you. And, and my house is your house and everything that I have is yours and come inside and Make you know, use anything you want to use. And I go out to town and I come back from town and I can't find him anywhere in the house. And I'm looking for him and I go into my bedroom and I find him sitting next to my little cupboard and he's got my drawer out and he's picking around in my things. And I say, Whoa, oh, you know, you're allowed to do that, those are my things. We want to, we want to have little, we want to have little things that are hidden. We want, we want this relationship, we want to be open and and transparent before God, but we want to have hidden little drawers and shelves and things where he mustn't come and dig around because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Oh boy, I just think of so many, so many um, incidents in, in God's word. I think of David sitting after his whole fiasco and terrible deed with, with uh, Bathsheba 
and, and how he'd killed her husband and murdered him and terribly. And, and what he'd done to her, he'd made her pregnant. And, and he'd covered his sin by murder and by lies and by deceit. And David, and I always, when I tell the children, I tell them the story before I tell them who the character is. And I remember one little guy standing up and saying, David did that. <laughs> I said, yeah, the same David that killed Goliath did that. And David's sitting on his throne, and, and I always think these, these old kings, when they heard that Samuel is outside, or Isaiah's outside, or Nathan's outside, <clears throat> they started to think, <laughs> and that's what David started to think, because Nathan came in, we know how he told him that story about this wicked man with his little sheep, and and all the terrible things that this man did, and how self-righteous David was, and said, that man, bring him to me, and I will. And how old Nathan points his bony fingers at him, and he says, you are that man. God wants us to be open and transparent. He wants us to understand. He wants us to realize that he knows we feel that our feet are almost slipping. We know that we're struggling. We know that we believe, but we struggle with our emotion. He's testing us. Um, Peter tells us that, that wonderful piece in, in, in 1 Peter, I think it's 6, yes. Um, 1 Peter 1 verse 6 and 7, that's right. 1 Peter 1 verse 6 and 7. In this you rejoice. <laughs> in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God is, God is testing us. God wants us to grow. He wants us to push these boundaries. He wants us to expose ourselves. He wants us to be honest. He wants us to be just transparent. But he also knows that we struggle, and he knows that we're human. And he knows that we have emotions. And he wants us to understand this, this awesome truth that we have to believe not in our emotions, but in God's truth. We have to stand on God's truth. And so God's word is truth. I, can, I remember as a boy, I grew up on a mission station. My father was a missionary doctor. And I remember on Sundays, we weren't allowed to swim, wait. <coughs> now, we, we lived on the south coast of Natal, and I was an absolute sea boy and a beach boy, and, and I loved swimming and surfing and doing things in the sea. And on a Sunday, we would ride from Murchison through Port Shepston, and those of you that know the geography would know that as you ride along the south coast, you go past St. Michael's, and you ride, in those days you'd ride over a bridge, and all these sinners would be sitting on the beach with their sun umbrellas and having fun, and you sitting in this combi with your little tie on, and you... <laughs> looking out the window and thinking, I'm on the wrong side there, you know. And then you ride over Yvonga River's bridge and you see all the sinners sitting on the beach and there's sun umbrellas and you think, man, I'd like to be there with them. And then you ride through Margate and you see this huge beach and it's just, oh. And I can remember many times riding with those thoughts and those childish thoughts in my mind. Man, am I on the right side here? You know? And, 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 as we, as we look at, at Asaph uh, um, sort of describing the kind of difficulties that were, that were facing him in these next verses, we understand this kind of thinking. Am I on the right side? 
He looks at the prosperous and the wicked and he sees they have no pangs in their death and that their bodies are fat and sleek and, and there's not any trouble as others are troubled and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind and they're fried and, and he carries on speaking about all these, these things and, and he thinks, I'm, I, I'm missing something. I'm on the wrong side here. My feet are, you know, maybe they've got something that I don't have. Doesn't that sound a little bit like what Adam and Eve had to face in the garden? Hey, hey, maybe I'm missing something here. Satan draws on that emotion of mankind. When they knew the truth about God, they'd communicated with him, they had fellowship with him, they had a perfect situation. And yet Satan throws that little, throws out that little piece of bait and says, God is hiding something from you. There's something better. There's something he doesn't want you to know. There's something you want to be, you want to have on that side. You actually want to be there. And he casts doubt in their mind. You know, as I was reading through this list of, of all the things of how these people scoff and how they scorn God and question God, whether he knows anything that's going on really, or whether he really exists, I remember a couple of years ago, now Wade will know the, 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 the stats better than this, but I know a couple of years ago, probably 10 years ago, we were doing a, a course, and, and one of the stats that came out of this course, it was to do with creationism, um, was that 75%, now it's got to be American because they keep stats about everything, um, 75% of, of, of first-year students at, at American universities, first-year students, who professed to be born-again believers, 75%, after the first year, no longer professed a belief in God's word as infallible and doubted their salvation. After one year at university. And you know why? Because of what Asaph is telling us about here. Because of scoffers and mockers who, who look like they've got it all together. And if we look at the world around us, it does seem like they've got it all together. It does seem like they've got the answers. I was, I was listening to, to Ravi Zacharias um, the other night, and, and this little scientist guy gets up, and he likes these guys that question him and fields these questions. And, and he jumped up, and he, and he made a statement, and I thought, that's just the kind of statement that the world and young people believe. And the statement was, we know that the Bible has dis, that the science has disproved the Bible. Nobody said a word, you know, just boom, a statement like that. And I, and you think, what? But that's what the world believes, and that's what the media says, and that's what everybody thinks, and that's what's being pushed, and that's what your children are being taught at school and at university. God has been disproved. In vain I have kept my heart clean. And so Asaph looks at these scoffers and, and he wonders, like I wondered while I was sitting in that combi, am I on the wrong side here? Maybe I should be with those people on the beach. It'd be far nicer. I will tell you, though, that I got saved a couple of years after that. Not that I didn't desire going to swim on the beach on a Sunday, but, but um, my thinking and my understanding of this concept changed after that. But faith is understanding that we believe the truth of God's Word. And God's Word doesn't need to be proven to us. It has proved itself over thousands of years. It is the truth unchanging. Man will tell you it's been disproved. It hasn't been disproved. In fact, science, true science, agrees more with 
with the, with the statements in the Bible than it does with evolutionary teaching. But we're not going to go there this morning. And so these people scoff. And they make as if they know things that you and I don't know, and they don't really know those things. And Romans, Paul tells us, and we know it very well, that, that first chapter of Romans, one of our favorite pieces in the Bible, and it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. For, the, for his eternal his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, so that they are without excuse. So those scoffers and mockers, they know deep down in the heart there is a God. In fact, they hate him. They push him out of their lives and, they, and they'll do anything to, to discredit him. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And so it goes on. I always remember when I still, days that I still had DSTV and the BBC news would come on and you'd see this red line going zip, 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 zip across the screen and, and suddenly you'd see all these television screens and people sitting there and lights and, and it looked so flashy and so man. This is impressive. Until you actually think of the smoke and mirrors of the whole thing. Those are people that they're showing there that are little individuals sitting behind television screens. And behind that television screen is a, is a lonely little person. Maybe with a bad marriage. Maybe with a, with a depressed demeanor. Maybe with a... Who knows what problems he's facing or she's facing. It's not this glitzy and glamorous thing that the world flashes out to us and says, this is it. This is the answer. And this is what Satan was trying to do with Asaph. And this is the dilemma that we face as well and, and will face and will face. But we need to grow through this and understand that God is faithful and that God's word is true. And that is what we trust beyond emotion, beyond all these things. We can trust God's word as the unchanging truth upon which we can build our lives. And so Asaph, as he feels that his, his feet are slipping and as he struggles and as he, as he uh, wonders how he's going to face the situation, what he's going to do about it, he goes, um, he remembers that God, that God is faithful. He remembers that God is faithful and he, he remembers certain things and he knows something which is so important, and that is that he goes into God's sanctuary. He goes to where he, know, he knows he's going to be between God's people, with God's people, surrounded by God's presence. He goes to that place of nearness to God. It doesn't tell us exactly where it was, but I would like to think he went into God's sanctuary. Maybe he was a priest. And in that sanctuary, in that quiet place, near to the heart of God, he finds the peace that he's looking for. And, and I think in many ways that, that represents what, we, what we're doing here this morning. It's a sanctuary. It's a place where we, where we draw aside from the world and, and we take our eyes off all these things and we get reminded of what I'm trying to remind us of this morning. 
that all these things are transient and all these things are smoke and mirrors and they, and they look so impressive and good and great and wonderful, and yet they're not. Most of them are built on a fallacy and on untruth and, and on lies. All the, all the pushing of, of you need this and you need that and you should have this and you should have more of that and you should have a bigger this and a bigger that is just the world. And it's untruth. And Asaph goes to this place where he's encouraged and I hope and I pray that this morning we'll understand the wonder of what Wade reminded us of too this morning, that, that we must never forsake this, the coming together as believers, where we encourage each other by praying together and by singing together and by reading God's word together and by immersing ourselves in this word and by hearing somebody trying to encourage us from his word. And I remember in Paul I had a friend and I'd always wonder if he was at church because he had a, he had a repertoire when he was singing of about, of about three notes. <laughs> and he had this loud bass voice. And when I heard this really flat singing behind me, and he could sing loud, you know, he would sing from his heart, but he, he really couldn't keep a tune. But it was such an encouragement to me because I knew Andre's here with his family. Oh, that's great. And so as I look at you here this morning, there's few of us, but it's encouragement to see each one here this morning. You encourage me. I encourage you. We encourage each other as we sing together, as we confirm these things, as we read these things, as we shut out the things of the world that try and take us away. You know, it reminds me of the, of the priests in the, in the Old Testament, of the priests at the time of the tabernacle. I, I, I can just see this picture in my mind of, of the desert and this tabernacle and the wind blowing and the sun's heat and there's noise, and they're sacrificing animals, and there's blood, and they wash themselves, and then they go into God's sanctuary, into his holy place. And suddenly it's, it's dead quiet, and the sun is shaded, and, and, they, and, they, and they look around them, and there's gold, and, and there's this golden candlestick burning with candles, and it's reflecting on the golden walls, and, and there's this table of showbread and maybe the smell of fresh bread and they can smell the incense from the incense altar and they, their fellow priests are there and they, and they cut off from the world around them and in this wonderful place where they are close to God and everything that they see and they look at is reminding them and encouraging them. Let us think of being together this morning as this kind of thing, as coming aside. It's coming into the sanctuary. Let's see the importance of it. Let's see the importance of, of just being here this morning. And let's just understand that God has a very real purpose in why he wants us to do this kind of thing. We're all priests, of course. <laughs> Peter tells us that we're, a, that we're a chosen race and a royal priesthood. John tells us, too, that we're priests. And these priests who go into the sanctuary, and you and I, we don't even need to go into the sanctuary. We actually have God's sanctuary inside us, isn't that so? We have his Holy Spirit living within us. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think of that old chorus we always used to sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, huh? We don't sing it often, but it's such a powerful chorus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his wonder and grace. Peter knew about that. I mean, he was the first guy after Jesus that got out of a boat and stood on water and actually walked. I mean, you're a guy that works with water. 
That doesn't happen. It's, it's scientifically impossible. And he walks on this water, and, and it's incredible. And Christ is calling him, and he's, wow. And then he looks around. He takes his eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, let's not do that this morning. Let's focus our eyes on him and on his word. Turn back to him. And then as Asaph was in the sanctuary, he saw their end. He saw the end, and as we read through these verses, we see he understood what the Lord Jesus Christ was saying to the people. What does it profit you if you go in the whole world and, and you lose your soul? We're going to live eternally in one of two places, in heaven or in hell. That is the bottom line. What does it profit you if you go in the whole world and you're the richest person, you've got everything you want, and you lose your soul? And you spend eternity in hell. You can't take anything with you. How does it profit you? It can't. Pro- he saw their end. And despite having all, all things, their end is terrible. They're set on a slippery place. And they're sliding towards the edge of, of destruction. And there's nothing to hold on to. And it's a terrible thing when a, when a godless person stands before eternity. Now, I haven't experienced that once or twice in my life. Have I seen people die? I don't think I've seen a person that doesn't know the Lord die, but I can just imagine. And I read stories about the kind of things that happen and how people, some of these huge atheists, stumbled around the room and begged the furniture to forgive them and begged anybody and anything to forgive them as after their sinful life too late. It's a terrible thing to slip off that edge without God. And this is what Asaph saw. And Asaph saw the end. <clears throat> and Asaph saw the end. And I am too far here. God's word brings us together. Yes. God's word brings us together. Um, that's, that's what I'm looking for. God's word brings us peace. God's word brings us peace. My goodness. There's nothing else that can give us this kind of peace that only God can give us. And Asaph looks at himself and uh, is filled with regret at his reaction. And he shamefully thinks of himself and he says, my soul was embittered and I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a wild beast. He understood how, how crazy his thinking was. And it is like that, you know. For us to be like Israel was, doubting God continually, provoking God continually. Um, we sang this song last, the, the last hymn that we sang, Amazing Grace. We need to be amazed by that grace daily. Because every time we stand up and our feet start slipping, we're doubting God. We're doing exactly what Israel did. Huh? We're not trusting Him. We're not walking close to Him. Aren't you glad that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and that we can hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. Hebrews 4 verse 14 tells us, but one who in every way, in every respect, was, has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My goodness, I'm so thankful 
when I read those verses. I'm so thankful that I have a gracious Father, that I have a gracious Savior who was a man like you and I, who was tempted in every way just like we are, who can sympathize with us in our weakness, and who is unendingly gracious. Because I, I test Him all the time. There's so many days that I feel down. There's so many days that I struggle, that I question, that I wonder. And that's just what the Israelites did throughout the wilderness, questioning, wondering, after all the things that God had done. If I look back in my life and I look at the standing stones as they had of what God has done in my life, why should there be any doubt in me? Why is my soul downcast often? And yet God is gracious and God is merciful. And he wants us to to come to that place of rest, that place where we find peace, where we find that he is our peace. John, I was just reading this morning again, John in exile on the, on the, on the Isle of Papas, an old man, exiled. In a, and I can imagine exile from whatever he was exiled from was not going to be a pleasant place. Patmos was a terrible place, just for starters. I haven't been there, but I've read it was a pretty rocky, nasty, horrible little place. And he was there, and he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Isn't that wonderful? And God reveals to him this book of Revelation. I mean, you know, it's not the place. It's what's going on in my walk with God. Am I dwelling in that sanctuary? Am I dwelling close to God in his place of quiet rest? Paul knew that. Paul in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier. I mean, he was the apostle that was supposed to be spreading the gospel, speaking to thousands, spreading it over the world. Everything's gone wrong. He's waiting to have his head chopped off. And he says to us, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Why? Because he's been in God's sanctuary, and he hasn't been in God's sanctuary. He's living in God's sanctuary. He's living in God's presence, knowing God is with him. God's promises are true. God's word is true. I can trust in God. My soul does not need to be downcast. And so, as Asaph realizes this, he, he, ends, this, he ends this wonderful psalm with these words. And we could have gone through all the words that he told. Maybe I should just read this last piece from verse 23. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Is that true of you? Nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Paul knew that. John knew that. Peter knew that. You and I need to know that. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion for heaven. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. And therefore, 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 that, that I might tell, God sends us out, that I might tell of your works. And so the Lord wants us to, to go from this place this morning encouraged, um, strengthened, to, to, to just take his presence and his sanctuary with us as we move into this world. Because we're going to be faced by, by the darkness 
and all of this stuff that we've been speaking about as we walk out these doors, the reality is going to hit us. But nothing has changed in our relationship with God. God is the same. His word is the same. His truth is the same. He is the same. God wants us to go. His word, he sends us. He sends us to, to be light. He sends us to walk into this world with hope in our hearts. And not just to speak about it, but to live in a way. Not to get involved in all these negative political discussions about South Africa and how bad it is and how done. Oh no, we need to live in hope and joy and peace above these things. And God gives us the strength to do that. May He enable us this morning just to be encouraged. I know I've, I've jumped around and I've hopped around, but, but I hope somewhere in all of that um, there's, there's an encouragement to all of us. Thanks for listening, and remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.